0: It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. podcast number 844 for the 11th of August 2023. This week, internet access is slower and more expensive in the United States than in many other countries. So it is important to figure out how much speed you need and then confirm you're getting what you pay for. In short circuits, the Windows Package Manager, Winget, provides access to more apps and utilities than the Microsoft Store does, but it's a command line function that's cumbersome to use. A graphical user interface, Winget UI, makes it much easier. Generative Expand has been added to Adobe's generative fill in the beta version of Photoshop. Even in early days, these are powerful features that look almost like magic. And 20 years ago, only on the website, scams have been around forever, and this week we'll take a look at a few from 2003. The internet comes in various sizes, from snack size to giant economy family size. Whichever size you have, you're probably overpaying for it, so it's important not to buy more than you need. I'd say you're probably overpaying for it because prices in the United States are considerably higher than those in most other developed countries. And the speeds are generally lower. What a bargain. Considering just wired connections, Singapore and the United Arab Emirates are at the top of the list, but Chile is only a bit lower. Next comes Hong Kong, China, Thailand, and in seventh place, the United States. The figures are from Speedtest. You'll find a link to Speedtest on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Denmark, Spain, and Monaco round out the top 10, but when it comes to cost, oh, the United States, we're up there in second place behind only Mexico. That's according to Broadband Search. You'll also find a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Values are based on the cost per megabyte of speed. A Wikipedia article puts the United States in 11th place, but at least we're ahead of Russia, which is listed in 51st place. And if you'd like to consider mobile data speeds, well, the U.S. is in 25th place, well behind Canada, South Korea, Netherlands, Japan, Norway and Singapore. So, after accepting the fact that you are probably paying more for slower service than are people in many other countries, it's wise to ensure that at least you're not paying more than you need to pay, and that you're getting what you pay for. Let's start with what you need. It depends on how many people are in the household, and what they're doing while they're on the internet a lot of households have dropped cable television service and instead are using streaming video services, that fundamentally changes internet usage. So if you're using the internet only for email, web browsing, social networking, and the occasional YouTube video, your needs are modest. Even the lowest broadband offering will be more than sufficient for a case like that. At the other end of the spectrum, consider two adults and three children living in the same house who connect a variety of computers, telephones, and televisions to the Internet and may be streaming five television programs while simultaneously using their computers, some perhaps for computer games. You're going to need more. A lot more. A connection with 300 megabits per second downlink speeds will probably be adequate, but there still might be some video lags if everybody's watching a different television at the same time and the household's gamers might experience some objectionable latency. Perceived speed is actually a function of bandwidth. Adding bandwidth allows you to have more high data functions active without seeing slowdowns. A 50 megabits per second data connection would be fine for a single high-definition video stream, an audio stream, and general web browsing all at the same time. Starting with a mid-range plan allows users to collect enough data on their own usage to determine how much speed they need. If everything works without a hitch at 300 megabits per second, consider reducing the speed to save money. If there are objectionable lags, start by confirming that you are actually receiving what you're paying for, and if so, then opt for a plan with more bandwidth. But how do you check the speed? Well, you could take your internet service provider's word that they are providing the speed you're paying for, but that's not always quite the case. If your ISP can't provide what you're paying for, then they should at least reduce the monthly fee. Many speed test services exist, and it's important to use more than one when testing. Also, choose a time when nobody is using the Internet in your house. Email or social media won't be a problem, but be sure there are no active video streams when you're testing. Also, test using a computer that's hardwired to the router if you can. If you find that a wired connection is fast, but Wi-Fi connections are slow, then you have a problem that the internet service provider cannot fix. The ISP is responsible only for the connection to the router. You are responsible for any internal wiring and Wi-Fi coverage. If you call your ISP and say, my connection is slow, there's really not much they can do about that. You need to be able to say something like, Look, I'm paying for a 300 megabits per second connection and routinely seeing only 100 megabits per second. Giving the ISP support person actual numbers at least improves your chances of having something done about it. In addition to using more than one testing service, you should also run the tests at several times throughout the day and on different days, including weekends, Others who are on your local network node in your neighborhood will affect the speed, or at least they can. So it's important to get a comprehensive picture of the service you're receiving over time. Most of the tests follow the same procedures. Several files will be downloaded and then discarded. The first file will be small. Often it starts at 128 kilobits. Next, a larger file will be downloaded. This file is often double the size of the first. That process continues either for a specific number of tests or until one of the individual tests exceeds a timeout value. The actual speed reported will be based on the downlink speed for the largest file. The upload test works the same way, except that the application creates random data files that are uploaded. No actual data from your computer is used. The uplink process usually consists of fewer tests because home-based internet connections have significantly different speeds for downlink and uplink. 500 megabits per second down versus 50 megabits per second up, for example. Home users rarely need faster uplink speeds. So here are some of the speed tests you can use. FAST is run by Netflix and provides just a single number, the downlink speed. That's the only number that's really important for streaming video, but users can select an option to show more information. If you do that, you'll also see a display for latency, where lower is better, and the uplink speed. You'll find a link to FAST on the Techbiter Worldwide website, along with the other speed testers that I'm listing here. Continuing with speed test, it'll display a ping response time, lower is better, and average speeds for downlink and uplink connections. Although the service automatically selects the testing service it feels is most appropriate, you can specify another server if you wish. Speed of me is entirely based on HTML5, so it doesn't use Flash or Java This is important for iOS and Android devices. It also provides a visual representation that shows downlink and uplink speeds in relation to file sizes. Smaller files have lower throughput because of the time needed to establish and finalize the connection. This is illustrated very clearly. Test MyNet takes a long-term view. Start the process and leave the web browser open but minimized. It'll then test connection speeds once an hour. TestByNet suggests waiting for 24 hours and says they believe this is a more accurate representation for your true speed because it does depend on responses from servers outside the ISP's immediate network. And Comparatech has possibly the most unusual approach. Every time the service is used, they donate one cent to Computers for Africa or the Electronic Frontier Foundation. That should immediately raise at least one question. How can a free service make contributions when people use it? The top of the screen, when you visit the website, has the answer. There are links for online backup, antivirus, virtual private networks, and other service providers. According to the company, and I quote here, First and foremost, we are a pro-consumer website providing information tools and comparisons to help consumers in the U.S., the U.K., and further afield to research and compare tech services. So the speed tests serve primarily as bait to get people to come to the site. Those who use any of the comparison services will see links to the services reviewed on the site. Comparatech then earns referral fees if somebody signs up for the product or service, but the site's disclosure page notes that they also post links to services and websites with which we have no advertiser relationship. Using one of the referral links doesn't incur any additional cost for you. Once you've done all your tests, and if you found that the internet speed is legitimately slow, reported it to the ISP, the ISP will probably try sending a reset signal to the modem and may try a few additional actions. Sometimes that will resolve the problem. If it doesn't, the ISP may claim there's nothing they can do to help. Well, that's wrong. This would be a good time to insist on having a technician examine the wire from the utility pole to your house. Squirrels love to chew wires, and it's not uncommon for a technician to find a fault caused by squirrels. Uh, That requires a real technician make a real trip to your real house and examine the real exterior wires. You can't do it over the phone or online. Sometimes mentioning the Better Business Bureau or your state's Public Utilities Commission will be enough to convince a first-tier tech to schedule the service call, or at least to escalate your call to a Tier 2 tech. The old adage that says any time spent waiting for a computer is wasted is doubly so with the Internet. So take a little time to be sure that you need everything you signed up for and that you're getting what you're paying for. in short circuits, say Package Manager to a Linux user and they'll know immediately what you're talking about. Say those words to a Windows user and you might get a blank expression. The Microsoft Store is sort of like a Package Manager, but there's a command line Package Manager called Winget that's part of Windows. And there's a graphical user interface that makes it more accessible. Winget is probably already installed on your Windows 10 or Windows 11 computer. If not, there are two ways to obtain it. First, from the Microsoft Store or by using the package installer on GitHub. The GitHub option is handy if you already have experience with package managers and package installers. You'll find what you need on the Winget-CLI page. Now, there's a link to that page from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Otherwise, just open the Microsoft Store and search for Winget. Click the button to install it, and once Winget is installed, you can proceed with the process of installing the graphical user interface for it. Use Winget to obtain the graphical user interface. Start with a command prompt or with PowerShell. You should confirm the name of the Winget UI installer by using the command Winget, search Winget UI. The package name is somepythonthings.wingetui.store. store. The version number was 2.0.1 when I installed WinGetUI. That number may be different when you do it. Now you'll use the command line version of Winget for the last time possibly to install the graphical user interface. Type Winget install somepythonthings.wingetui.store. store. You'll find that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you can copy and paste. The process takes only a few seconds, and it's complete when the command prompt returns. To start Winget UI, press the Windows key, and then type Winget to display the Winget UI app icon. Resist any urge to run it as administrator. If you do, the application will warn you that this would be a security issue and that it's a bad idea. The first screen you'll see should offer Winget, Scoop, and Chocolaty. Make sure there's a check mark in at least the Winget box. Scoop and Chocolaty or other package managers. Enable as many of them as you want. The first time you open Winget UI, the Discover Packages screen will probably be blank. That's because the app needs to query all of the package managers you selected, and that could take a few minutes. But there's also another reason. And if after the query of all the package managers is complete, there are still no packages displayed, Well, that's pretty easy to fix. Click the vertical ellipsis in the upper right corner to open Settings, open the Interface Preferences, and select List Packages if the query is empty on the Discover Packages tab. Then return to the Discover Packages tab. If the package listing is still blank, and it probably won't be at this point, but if it is, click the Refresh button. There are three tabs, Discover Packages, Software Updates, and Installed Packages. To add an app, find it on the Discover Packages tab, either alphabetically or by typing part of the application name in the search box. By default, the packages are listed in alphabetical order, but you can change the order to the package ID in the second column, or the source, which would be Winget, Scoop, or Chocolaty, or even the version number, if you can think of some good reason to do that. To install one or more packages, place a check mark in the furthest left column for the apps that you want, and then click one of the install options. The options are Normal Install, Install as Administrator, Skip the Hash Check, or Perform an Interactive Install. There's also a button that will display information about the selected package. The Software Updates tab lists any installed packages that have new versions. To install an update, click one or more of the checkboxes in the left column, and then click the Update icon. In some cases, an update may fail, and if that happens, WinGet UI will display the cause of the failure. The third tab lists all of the installed packages on the computer. Now, you probably noticed that I said it's unwise to run Winget UI as Administrator, but Winget UI has an option to install packages as Administrator. Now, these are two very different things. Running Winget as Administrator is dangerous, but some applications must be installed as Administrator, or at least will work better if they are. So, there are two primary reasons to avoid running Winget itself as Administrator. The first involves the scoop package method. Manager if you've installed it. The second is that all apps WinGet UI installs will be installed as administrator if it is running as an administrator. And in most cases, you don't want that. The Scoop Package Manager is intended primarily for advanced users. And as such, I haven't installed it, but you'll find instructions on the Scoop website if you want to. And there's a link to the Scoop website on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Photoshop Beta, which is available to anyone who licenses Photoshop Creative Cloud, continues to sprout new features. I've shown Generative Fill previously, and now there's a close cousin called Generative Expand. These features are new. They don't always perform exactly as you might want them to. In many ways, they're not exactly ready for prime time yet, and maybe that's why they're in the beta version of Photoshop. Yet they are amazing even in early beta. Let's take a look at how you might use generative fill today, and then examine the current primary shortcoming. Let's say you have a photo of some delicious baked beans. You'll see this image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The image crops off a bit of the bowl's back edge, a bit of the left edge, and quite a bit of the bowl's front edge. You wish you had included the whole bowl when you took the picture. So you open the image in Photoshop beta, grab a crop tool, and expand the image on the back, left, and front sides, and with generative expand selected without any text in the description area, you press generate. The resulting image, at least in my case, was surprisingly accurate. Take a look at it. Can you see any visible difference between the real bowl or the tablecloth and what Adobe added? I can't. Then again, this is a relatively low-resolution image, and both Generative Fill and Generative Expand currently have significant resolution limits. If you start with a small image, you won't see the differences caused by that. And that's the primary shortcoming. Where you will see the difference is with a high-resolution image. Let's say you have a photo of a salad that's taller than it is wide, but you need a square image. A simple crop would remove too much important information, maybe a hand or part of the salad itself, just to get it square. So here's where the Generative Expand function comes in. You use the Crop tool with a 1-to-1 aspect ratio and extend the range to the right. I mentioned this is a high-resolution image. The original is 3,712 pixels by 4,335 pixels. The final image is going to be 4,335 pixels square. That's a lot of pixels. A small version of the expanded image looks perfect, but a high-resolution version where we zoom in and look at the detail reveals the problem. The spot where the original image ends and the generated part begins is clearly visible because the generated area has much lower resolution. Adobe's objective probably is to reduce processing time. Doing the magic in high resolution will take a lot longer. Making it fast, but a little bit rough, probably encourages more people to try it, and that allows the developers to get more feedback from users. Today, both Generative Fill and Generative Expand have limited uses in the real world, but it's very easy to imagine how valuable these tools are going to be in the future and the not-too-distant future at that. Our future will also have spams and scams. Nothing new about that. And 20 years ago, on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week, we'll take a look back at what crooks were doing in 2003. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session.